0: Hello everyone, thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 5-6. through So to begin, uh,
0: let's set the stage for this particular chapter 14 with There are three parts here. You get the beheading of of John the the Baptist at the hand of Herod, you get the feeding of the 5,000, and you get the walking on water. That middle element, the the feeding of the 5,000, happens to be one of only a very small handful of events in the first roughly 33 years of his life. This is before the week of his atoning sacrifice. So everything from birth, up through two and a half years, maybe almost three years of his ministry, there's only a small handful of stories that are included in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the feeding of the 5,000 is probably next to the baptism of Christ. Those two events are included in all four, and there are, there is a small handful of other minor things that are included in John as well as the synoptics. But that tells us that this particular event, the feeding of the 5,000, it, it's a defining moment in Jesus's ministry. It, it got everybody's attention.
1: It's almost like if you could just map those overlaps of the four gospels about the life of Jesus, it's baptism, feeding the 5,000, death and resurrection. I mean, that's pretty significant, like, major plot points in his life, and it says a lot about what Jesus is trying to do for each of us. So that just... Already gives you a sense for what we should be looking for when we're reading the story.
0: Yeah, and and to take that one step further, the the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined with John, they cover a lot of events during the last week of the Savior's life. Um, Triumphal entry, it's in all four. Uh, Cleansing of the temple, you're going to get elements of that in all four. John's gospel puts it three years earlier, but you get that story of cleansing the temple. So we don't want to spend a ton of time on this uh, beheading story of John the Baptist. If you go to the Bible dictionary and look up Herod, you will see there a a family pedigree chart, if you will, and you'll see that Herod the – we call him Herod the Great. He's not great on any level other than he was one of the – one of history's greatest builders. So, Herod has multiple children with multiple wives, and so when he dies, his kingdom gets split. Well, he has a granddaughter, if you look on that chart, named Herodias, who looks at her her uncles and tries to anticipate which one's going to end up with the most power. So, Herodias marries her uncle, Herod Philip thinking he's going to be the one to get the biggest chunk of his father's kingdom. And it turns out that he doesn't. Her other uncle, Herod Antipas, becomes the Tetrarch. So what does she do? She leaves her husband slash uncle, Herod Philip, and goes and simply moves in with her now brother-in-law, uncle, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch. And it's that... A relationship that John the Baptist comes and condemns. Well, that makes John the Baptist a target for Herodias. She wants him killed, and Herod refuses to do that because he sees how popular John is among the people and, and knows how unjust that execution would end up being. So, on his birthday, when he's invited all of these important people to come celebrate with him, Herodias' daughter dances for him, pleases him, and he says, I'll, I'll give you anything you want, even up to half the kingdom. She goes and asks her mom, what should I say? And she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a charger. And so now in front of all of his friends, he, he feels forced into doing that, and so John the Baptist is now beheaded. When that word Makes it to to Jesus when he finds out that John the Baptist has, has been killed, especially in that manner. You can imagine the effect it would have on you if you found out that a close relative of yours had been killed. But this isn't just any death notification for Jesus, this was John the Baptist. We know what John the Baptist's role is. He is the forerunner. He goes in front of Jesus, just in front of him, to prepare the way. So the unspoken message is, Jesus, get ready, because John has now gone to the spirit world to prepare the way. I don't imagine that John went into the spirit world and told everybody there, hey, just relax, take your time, it's going to be a long while. I can picture him going into the spirit world saying what he said in the Judean wilderness, repent, make his path straight, prepare the way of the Lord, for he is coming soon. And at this point, things probably become a little more real, a little more locked in as far as the mission, what Jesus came to this earth to accomplish, and now with John in the spirit world, it's it's as if the message is, okay, Jesus, prepare yourself because the end for you is now very near. At which point, look at how Matthew words this in verse 13, when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. I don't know about you, but, but when I hear of tragedy or when I'm in mourning or when I'm, when I'm struggling, emotionally with, with dealing with grief, I don't usually want to go into a social setting and, and be really uh, filled with conversations with a whole bunch of people. I kind of want alone time and I love this, this humanity that is, that is displayed coming to us from Jesus that he departed into a desert place apart by ship. Now, granted, Mark, and Luke's account, they give the the beheading of John, and then some other things like the disciples and apostles coming home from their missions and him saying, Yeah, we need we need some downtime, basically. So the motivation's a little different in Mark and Luke. But I like Matthew's version here, where it's almost as if Jesus says, Let's get on the ship. I need to be alone. I, I need I need some time but when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Verse 14 is amazing. When Jesus went forth, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. I don't know about you, but if I had gotten on a ship to go to the opposite end of the Sea of Galilee, or or far away, to a desert place apart, if I had come into the shoreline and seen a whole bunch of people that have followed me on foot out of the cities, I, I would have been tempted to say to Peter, let's, let's go to the other side and tell people, I'm sorry, I'll be back, I, I just need a little bit of time. But Jesus, in that incredible moment of, of wrestling with possibly what that death of John means for him and working through a grieving process, whatever that looks like for Jesus, he comes ashore and he not just interacts with these people, but he had compassion on them and he healed them. There's no mention in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John of anybody asking Jesus how he's doing, how he's feeling, how he's coping with this, but he's able to still bless them.
1: I agree with you, Tyler. This is a really poignant story. We, we so often focus on the divinity of Jesus, we sometimes forget He suffered as we do. He had emotions. He was impacted by the loss of friends and family, and like a typical human, he wanted time to recover and yet we see his divinity shining through where he takes the time to bless other people's lives. And what's interesting is all of us have divinity within us that we also feel that same call to bless people when the opportunity arises. And then what happens? He blesses them. And it's getting to become evening time. They're out in the middle of a long way away. They don't have Uber Eats or other way of doing delivery of like pizza or whatever. You can't drone drop food in from the sky. What are you gonna do? Feed it's, all it's, these people?
0: It's amazing to me that that there are all of these needs, that the healings and now the feeding need. It, it's it's gigantic. This load that's been placed on him. And when I was younger, I used to. I used to scratch my head and wonder, why? Why did Heavenly Father allow 5,000 men besides the women and children in the group come and basically interrupt Jesus's desire to have some alone time? It wouldn't have been hard for Heavenly Father to prevent that from happening. The older I've gotten, the more I've started to wonder, was that actually a gift from a loving Heavenly Father to his Son who perhaps was hurting very, very deeply, saying, oh, this, this is painful, and now his, his promise, his covenant to perform an atoning sacrifice for everybody, maybe that's a little more on the foreground, and so he needs help. I know what to do. I'll send 5,000 who need to be healed because Jesus has taught that in giving, you actually receive and I think this story portrays that as beautifully as any other story in all of scripture from Matthew's perspective that Jesus who was hurting so badly found a way to swallow up his own need temporarily in order to bless those whose needs were far less than his own. I have watched this on so many levels over so many years with moms who meet the needs of youngsters, of children at all hours of the day and night when they themselves maybe don't feel great, maybe they're struggling with physical or mental or emotional or just sheer exhaustion and somewhere they find a way to meet those needs that are far less than the hurts that are being carried within. I've seen it with ward members, with family members in the extended family who go out of their way to bless the lives of others when most people have no idea what hurt and and difficulties and pains they're carrying in their own heart, and yet they still serve and they don't make it about them. They make it about the people they're serving. Jesus is that perfect example and we see it reflected in the lives of of all these uh, people today. So, you you can picture this scenario. Jesus has been healing them, teaching them, and the sun's getting ready to go down and the apostles are getting a little panicked. Jesus, send them away because they're going to have to to eat. They're all hungry and his statement, don't send them away, feed them, knowing perfectly well what their response is going to be. They're saying, how – it would take 200 penny worth to feed this group, 200-day salary for a common labor to be able to just give everybody a little taste and then send them on their way. He's basically asks, so what do we have? And it's in John's account where they say, you know, one lad brought five barley loaves and two fishes. So we're not talking big loaves of bread. We're talking barley loaves and two fishes. That's it. I don't know about you, but I feel a lot like that lad more often than not in life. When I, when I went into the MTC dragging two uh, pieces of luggage with my carry-on slung over my shoulder and my family with me, I felt like that lad. I felt like I had five loaves and two fishes of preparation. And here was the mission staring me in the face, and it was a feeling of, wait, I I don't have what it takes to feed all these people. When I went to college, I felt like a five-loaf, two-fish lad. When I got my job first teaching seminary, first class full-time, I felt like a five-loaf, two-fish lad. When I got married, kneeling across the altar from my wife, I felt like a five-loaf, two-fish lad placing it on the altar, it, it looks pretty meager, My what I have to offer. And quite frankly, every time that Taylor and I stand in front of this little camera here in the studios of Book of Mormon Central, I feel like a five loaf, two fish lad. I, I can list off a lot of people who know a lot more facts and details and figures about scriptures and history and, and are going to get things just right. And, and I'm not all the time, but I love the fact – this lad is one of my favorite heroes in all the Scripture we don't even know his name – I love the fact that when the Apostles come to him and ask for his food, he doesn't respond with, are you kidding me? I am the only one who came to this picnic today and remembered to bring food and now you're going to take it all away from me? That means I'm only going to get a little – maybe a crumb back, looking at the size of the crowd. I love the fact that he held nothing back. He inspires me to put it all on the altar of the Lord and say, I give it all freely. As inadequate and insufficient as it absolutely is, I give it all. And you'll notice Jesus didn't go up to the lad and say, I want you to feed everybody. He simply asked the lad to give him everything that he had and it was Jesus who was going to multiply that harvest. It was Jesus who was going to perform that miracle fueled by that young lad's faith. And I love this, that then he blesses it, he breaks it, and he starts dividing it out. And by the way, since it's in all four gospel accounts, you get these little teeny details that are added. For instance, John tells us about the lad. Mark tells us that he commanded them to sit down on the green grass, He's the only one to add that qualifier of, it's green grass. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasant place to sit. It's not dry, prickly ground and dirt or gravel. It's green grass. It becomes part of the miracle. So, they're sitting there in companies of 50, 100 companies of 50, and he starts handing it to the disciples to then spread through the crowd. And everybody ate. Mm-hmm. Notice verse 20, they did a All eat. That would be 100% of them. 5,000 men beside the women and children. And they were filled. They didn't just get a little nibble, they were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. You see the implication? Who got to eat the bread and the fish that day? Everybody, probably including Jesus, but The lad got to eat all that he wanted that day. I don't know, and this might be taking things too far, but I, I can guess that bread and fish never tasted better to that lad than it did on that day returned to him from the Lord Jesus Christ, because you see, that's the kind of God we worship. Whenever we make an offering and put it at the feet of the Savior or put it on the altar of the Lord, he never lets us walk away poorer than we were when we walked up. He never lets us – he never goes into debt to us. He never owes us anything. He always finds ways to, to abundantly return anything that we've sacrificed and if there are 12 baskets full left over, we don't know what happened to those leftovers and how they got parsed out. I know in one of the gospel accounts it says, make sure that there would be no waste. They're they're not going to leave them there to to rot. They're going to be used. I can picture this young lad going home, perhaps, to his mother saying, Mom, you're never going to guess what happened to the bread and the fish, and look, perhaps he brings home an entire basket himself i don't i don't know a tenfold return it's this idea though of that bread and that fish now had an additional ingredient that weren't there when the lad left home and the ingredient that was now infused into them by the savior himself by his hands and by his love is that gift or that ingredient of faith. Faith is now infused in here from this this lad and for the crowd as it's now returned to him. So, next time you and I are asked to sacrifice something for the Lord, perhaps we could look at it not so much as, oh no, I can't give that up, I can't give that time or that money or that energy or that effort up. It's going to cost me too much. Perhaps we could hear a little voice in the back of our mind of that lad saying, make the offering, put it all on the altar and trust that the Lord will magnify and multiply that meager uh, offering that you're making.
1: So then we get this interesting transition where we have this John has died, Jesus is distressed, he tries to go find solace and he actually does in serving other people and and multiplying beyond expectation and then we get this incredible experience out on the water. Yeah, so
0: let's pick it up in verse 22, straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So the ship that brought him here, he sends all of his apostles back to that ship to go home and sends all the people who have come on foot, they go away, leaving Jesus all alone in that mountain. Look at verse 23, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. That's a, that's an important principle for us to remember. He wanted some communing time with Heavenly Father. He wanted to be alone. That's why he came out earlier in this day, and he didn't get it perhaps when he wanted it originally, but he was willing to swallow up his will in the will of Heavenly Father and teach and serve and bless and feed this multitude, but he does get his alone time later on that evening where he can uh, spend that time in this mountain apart from everybody else, and it's in one of the other gospel accounts when it says that he saw them toiling on the water in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm. So it's really dark and stormy, but from the mountain he still sees them, Uh, just as as, a a consideration for you here? How hard would it have been for Jesus, as he sends those apostles down to the ship and sends the multitudes away, how hard would it have been for him to say, you know, it's been kind of a long, draining day on a lot of levels, and they're tired. I want a gentle wind to blow them perfectly in the direction for home so that they, they can have the smoothest, easiest trip home with the least amount of energy expended. How hard would that have been?
1: Or showing up immediately when the storm hits. What, what time of night is it when he finally arrives?
0: Yeah, so it, it talks the,
1: about the fourth, fourth watch. watch. It's not the first watch of night, he waits till the fourth watch. Now before we jump full, fully into this, I want you to think, have you ever had any time in your life suffering and you wondered why God did not show up in your life immediately when you wanted him? And when I've had those moments, and I've had more than I wish I've had, I remember this story that sometimes God lets us toil in the suffering, and yet there's still a salvation.
0: Yeah, so just so we're on the same page, there, there are a variety of possible ways you could look at this. One is to see that the nights were divided into these four watches where the first watch technically begins at evening when the sun sets, and this is going to vary depending on the time of year, whether it's in the winter, fall, spring, or summer, but for the averages, let's say from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., the first three-hour watch is the evening watch when it's dusk, the sun has gone down and now it's getting darker, 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 and then the second watch would take you to midnight. The middle of the night is the ending of that second watch. And now from midnight to 3 a.m. would be your third watch, and from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is your fourth watch. It's – the sun is
1: getting ready to come up. And it's the darkest hour. This is the darkest time well, – as I say of the day, it's the darkest time of the night, so it's interesting. He doesn't show up when they're struggling here, here, or here, and they would have needed him in all these moments, and it's when they seem to be most desperate. And I, again, I, I just had lunch with a friend today and we talked about this very situation. Why is it God allows people, good people, to suffer who have tried to do everything right, love their children, family prayer, scripture study, going to church, serving wherever they can, and yet there's still struggle and there's difficulty and questions around situations they don't have easy answers to. And I take solace that God understands where things are going, and we might find ourselves at 2.30 AM thinking, I'm ready to be saved right now, and Jesus understands you will be saved, but I'm going to let you have a few more experiences before we get to that point. So, let's pick up the text here, verse 24, but the ship
0: was now in the midst of the sea. So, out there in the middle of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. The wind is blowing in the opposite direction from where you're trying to go. And again, this would not have been hard for Jesus to prevent that from happening, or better yet, to create a gentle breeze blowing them home, but he didn't, because you see, this life, just like that ship journey that night, it's not just about getting to a destination. It's about what we're becoming. It's about the process of working through trials and tribulations with faith and trust in the Lord to stretch and grow and become somebody that we weren't when we got on that ship. So, they're working against this contrary wind, and it says, in the fourth watch of the night, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., roughly speaking, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. How long is the list of water walkers at this point in scripture's history? Uh, I can't think of
1: any can't think of any. This is not normal behavior. And culturally, there was – in their culture, the expectation was if you're going to see a ghost, it was during that time of night. And so already they're predisposed by their culture to think the only thing this could be is some kind of ghost or spirit that's going to torment us. Not only are we going to be drowned, we're going to be scared by a ghost while it's happening, while we're drowning in this storm. So watch the contrast. You notice the last word –
0: of, of verse 26, fear. They're crying out for fear. They're afraid. They're in they're in over their head. It's dark. They're exhausted. Yesterday was a long day, and now they've been toiling all the night against this contrary wind and this storm, and now they see this, this thing, this being walking on the water. They're convinced it's a spirit. They are clearly afraid, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. I love that. And if some of you happen to be going through a terrible storm in what you think is the fourth watch, maybe for some of us we're still only in the second watch thinking, okay, surely he's going to come now, and maybe we've still got months or years or in some cases decades left with that toil, but eventually, we put our trust in him instead of putting our trust in getting to the destination on our own, then hopefully we can hear this voice be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And then, I think this has to be one of the strangest responses in all of scripture. If I were in the boat, standing there, hearing that voice, I'd think, oh, good, it's Jesus. Huh. I don't need to be afraid, he's gonna to come to me. And then you hear Peter say, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. If it's really you, then ask me to come to you on the water. I I don't know about you, but I'd look at Peter and say, What? Yeah what did you just ask?
1: Yeah. Were you drinking the, the, the sea water here?
0: <laughs> and Jesus said one word Come and when Peter was come down out of the ship. Have you noticed how we tell these stories with words and we, we kind of know the end of the story and so we don't stop to actually think what it would be like? If you're in the fourth watch, it, it might be – the sky might be graying, getting ready for dawn to, to break at 6 a.m. or somewhere around that time period, but can you picture what it would feel like and look like and and be like to watch Peter? grab hold of the end the side of that that gunwale and lift his leg to get over I, again i don't know about you but i'd be thinking peter what are you what are you doing and then that second leg and then him letting go and walking and remember this is not a glassy surface this is a storm that's contrary with lots of waves it's uneven and now peter is out there walking on that stormy sea. Hmm. I wonder if this story is more alive and well today than we've given it credit for. I wonder if Jesus is constantly calling you and me to get out of our comfort zone and get out on a stormy sea and do things we've never done before. And notice our list of water walkers now went to two that we have record of and he's doing things he's never done before, sometimes the shortest distance between you and the Savior is over a very stormy sea, doing scary things. And I love the fact that Jesus' steadiness provides this anchor to build Peter's faith to the point where he he can access that level of power coming to him from Christ to where he can actually walk on that water and he's doing fine until, you'll notice it says, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. This is Peter, the professional fisherman, who spent his life out in that sea. This must have been a pretty serious wind and wave that, set of waves that have kicked up now, and he saw them boisterous. The implication here is that Peter is now looking at the waves and the effects of the wind rather than at Jesus and instantly he goes down and his knee-jerk response is, Lord, save me. I love those three words. And Jesus doesn't stand there on the water scolding Peter.
1: Or waiting for the fifth watch. (laughs) <laughs> we waiting for the fifth watch. Which there wasn't one. But. He,
0: he reaches down immediately. I love verse 31. Mm-hmm. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Did you catch that? He didn't go up to Peter treading water in the stormy sea and say, O thou of little faith. He immediately caught him. And the idea is, it seems that he would have pulled him back up onto the water. And then I can picture, I don't know how it actually happened, but in my mind's eye, I can picture Jesus putting that steadying, powerful arm of love and mercy around Peter and saying, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Don't you find that interesting that one of two people who has walked on water was told that he had little faith and he heard those words not while he was treading water but while he was standing on the water next to the lord and then you'll notice peter didn't swim back to the boat he walked back to the boat but there's no mention of him sinking because now he's walking with christ brothers and sisters when when The Lord calls us to do things, to get out of our comfort zone, to to go on a mission, go into marriage, go into a profession, go into a calling, whatever that may be. It can be scary and at times we can feel like we're drowning and we're going to sink and be lost forever, but when we're with him, when we're on his errand, doing his bidding, we can walk on water. We can do all things through Christ. We can't do anything on our own, but through him, we can do all things. I, I love this story for, for teaching me to just trust him and do these things that maybe before everybody would have thought you crazy for even trying to do. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. <laughs> Did you notice that none of them went up to Peter and said, Peter, wow! That was amazing! You are so incredible!" It wasn't about Peter. It was never about Peter. It was always about coming to Christ, and they all recognized there is no way Peter could have done that. It was Jesus who performed that miracle. Peter exercised enough faith to be able to walk on the water, but it was all about Jesus, and surely he is the Son of God. Now, let's jump over to Mark chapter 6 and pick up a couple of verses here in this chapter to conclude this particular episode. Look at the contrast. There are people who in verse 2 are astonished at him, saying things like, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And
1: they were offended at him." He was unexpected. By the way, these names are all very, very common names in the Galilee region in the time of Jesus, so they're basically saying he's about as common as they come. Now, By the way, another common name is a guy named Joe Smith. Like Joseph Smith is a pretty common name, and God does uncommon things with what seem to be very common people, and people don't seem to understand the identity of Jesus. Some episodes ago, we encouraged people to look for how does Jesus express his identity and how do people come to understand who Jesus is or misunderstand him? One of the invitations of the Gospels is come to know Jesus, and this is one of those instances where people seem to not understand their preconceived notions of what they think Jesus is, or who they think he should be, messes with the reality of who he truly is. And it's in our own lives, we were all children of God. Do we treat ourselves and others like that, or do we let the world's identity encroach on the divine identity that you inhabit and everybody you know also inhabits?
0: So, look at the outcome of that. Because of the choice they made to be offended because of him, because how could he possibly do anything good? We know him, he's just the carpenter, the tectone from down the street. What is the outcome of that? Verse 5, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. They won't believe, so they can't receive the miracles. How many times does he say, thy faith hath made thee whole? Well, thy unfaith can make it so that you can't be made whole as well, and that's what we see here. So, as we close this particular episode, I think if our lad from the feeding of the 5,000 were here, or if Peter were standing here, I think they would say, you have to put your full and complete trust in the Lord. Make the choice to turn your life over to him. Put it all on the altar. Make it so that he doesn't have to take things away from you because you freely give them of your own free will, your own choice. You're placing them on the altar of the Lord knowing that he is going to bless them and not hold on to them selfishly, but he's going to now return them to you. And now as we finish, consider the bread and the fish one more time. How long would those five loaves of barley, bread, and two fish have lasted before they became unusable? Maybe a few days at the very most? But because they were placed as an offering on the altar of the Lord, they became not mortal anymore, they became immortal and they will live forever. We're telling their story again today and we're going to keep being reminded of this story till the end of time and probably into the eternities. Brothers and sisters, what a great opportunity it is for us to take those mortal things that God has given us, our time, our money our energy, any health that we may have, any resources that we have, and to be able to ask him, Lord, what can I do to more fully consecrate all these things and my own heart and my mind to thee more today than I've ever done it in the past? Regardless of how insignificant my five loaves and two fish may look, the Lord is willing and more than able to magnify and multiply those efforts. So as we dive into the scriptures today in chapter 5 of John, it's almost as if Jesus has gone out of his way to he, – he's in Jerusalem, so it's a festival time of the year, but it's almost as if he's gone out of his way to go to a location where there are lots of sick folk lot of infirmities, and they seem to congregate near the pool of Bethesda, which is north of Jerusalem. So we begin in verse 1, chapter 5. After this, so this was um, the miracles in John chapter 4, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He's, He's a good practicing Jew in his day, And now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. So for many years, archaeologists were looking for this pentagon-shaped pool somewhere up in that region and they, they couldn't find it. What they ended up finding, however, was a pool with five porches. There are four of them and then you've got a middle porch dividing the two pools. So there's a pool on the north and a pool on the south. The one on the south is a mikvah, a ritual bath. So it would have steps to go down into this lower pool. Picture a huge public swimming pool where uh, people coming into Jerusalem, this is near the a road coming in from the north. When you come in, you need to take a ritual bath to be and cleansed to go into the city. So you can imagine what this southern pool would have looked like after, uh, say, a few thousand pilgrims have come in at this time of year for a festival, and they've all taken a ritual bath. Well, the northern pool doesn't have those same steps, it's not a mikvah, it's a collecting pool for the good water, the fresh water, the clean water, and in the middle between the two pools there's a big sluice gate that they could lift up or um, somehow raise up, and it would allow the fresh water from the north pool to come rushing into the dirty uh, mikvah, this ritual bathwater of the south pool, and all of the sludge and the, and the garbage in that pool would get washed out, down the Kidron Valley and eventually down to the Dead Sea. So it would kind of refresh that ritual bath. So Jesus has purposefully come here. You've got porticos all around these pools where a lot of sick folk would would lay around.
1: Yeah. They had this healing tradition because as this sluice gate would be opened, it would roil up the waters and people would see this, and the common belief was that, well, there's an angel that is treading on the waters that we can't see and whoever's lucky enough to get into the waters right when you see that happening will be healed. And again, I love how Jesus – Jesus doesn't try to correct or update people's perspective of what was going on with the water. He just very simply shows how does healing really happen. So if you look at verse 3, in these lay
0: a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And then we get this interesting verse with the angel in verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, if you look in uh, many other English translations of the Bible, verse 4 is missing. If you go to BibleHub.com, verse 4 is missing. It's not there. If you look at our oldest, best guess as to what the original manuscripts of the Gospel of John looked like based on early dating manuscripts, all of these oldest versions of the book that we have, verse 4 is not there. It doesn't show up until sometime later. All of a sudden it, it starts appearing in some of the manuscripts and it ends up in the manuscript family that the King James translators used, thus it's in our scripture. But if you read it, you can see that it still makes sense if you go from – they're waiting for the moving of the water, realize that some copyist later on thought, well, what is this moving of the water and why are they trying to get in? And so somebody made up this tradition and
1: just added it. Or some tradition they had access to, and it's almost like they had that side commentary. Have you ever written on the side margin of your scriptures and then maybe somebody copies that into a future version and takes your commentary and (laughs) inserts it in? and that's what we think happened, some scribal commentary made itself in as one of the verses in scripture.
0: There you go. So, no angel, we now know this sluice gate would cause a very real troubling of the water, and here we get verse 5. A certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Now we're getting close to the amount of time that Israel was out in the wilderness with Moses wandering around, 39, 39 and a half years from the time that they have the experience with the, the twelve spies.
1: And what's the, what's the feast season going on right now? Likely
0: Passover. Probably Passover. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, wilt thou be made whole? So you've probably heard people comment on this before that this is a very unusual miracle on a lot of levels because Jesus comes to this place where there are a lot of sick folk. He picks one guy, approaches him, and asks him, do do you want a miracle? Do you want want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Instead of waiting for somebody to come to Jesus to request the miracle. You'll notice most of the previous miracles that you've seen – have come as a response to a faith-filled request, either from the sick individual or the one in need or from a loved one to that individual. And in this case, there's no sign of that.
1: It's just Jesus coming up saying, do you want to be made whole? And the guy doesn't seem to understand the question. How does he respond? The impotent man answered, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So it seems that He believes that what Jesus is offering is, I can carry you into the water because you believe the water, as it gets roiled up, this fresh water will make you whole. The man doesn't know who Jesus is, and Jesus does the unexpected, basically says to the man, I'm not going to help you in the water, you can probably help yourself. And He says, rise, take up thy bed, and walk.
0: You see verse 9, immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. Part of the miracle here is that he's been lame. He's been in this condition for thirty-eight years, which means he doesn't have the muscle structure in his legs, he doesn't have the balance between his inner ear and his brain and his, all the nerve endings in his feet and legs and his body to be able to – but Jesus fixes all of that immediately with his power, rise up, take up thy bed, and walk. So he's made a whole, he took up his bed and he walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. So now let's jump to this little interchange between the leaders of the Jews and this man carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, a big no-no for their oral tradition. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry, for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. The, the idea here is I wasn't going to argue with him. I've. Are you noticing something? Instead of celebrating with this man saying, 38 years you've been dependent on everybody to, to help you and do everything for you and now you can walk, let's celebrate with you and care, help you carry your bread home, knowing you'll never have to do that again out here, Let's, let's find you a place to stay, a permanent home. Instead of doing that, they're making him feel bad for having been healed because it was a Sabbath day, and so then they asked him, who, who told you to do this? And he that was healed wist not who it was. He knew not who had done it. He didn't know Jesus' name. So afterwards, you see that Jesus found him in the temple in verse 14, and he said, behold, thou art made whole sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. And then what does our what does our man that was healed do? He just runs. It's almost like, okay, now I know who it was. So, he goes straight to the Pharisees or straight to the chief priests, and he says, oh, I've got the name for you, and he tells them that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And so, now we begin in the Gospel of John for the first time this active... Conflict, this active pursuit against Jesus that begins here in verse 16. Therefore, did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day? And so now we open our first major confrontation in the Gospel of John in Jerusalem with the leaders of the Jews. So Jesus engages with this discussion. Look at verse 17, he answered them, my Father worketh hitherto, and I work. So, he's saying, look, you've seen the works of my Father and and you're seeing me work now too. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Do you see the theological implications here? He made himself – the. Son, he, he's declaring himself as the Son of God and they're equating that as making himself equal with God because sons grow up to become like their fathers. They have their father's power given to them and they do not love this because they see him as a law-breaking reprobate from the Galilee who's come into our uh, center of power and now he's Not just breaking the law himself, he's encouraging other people to break the law, and they are so blinded by their anger at him that they can't see the irony of the lawgiver who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai sitting in front of them, and they refuse to to recognize him. So, Verse 19 is one of the critical verses that shows the relationship between Father and Son, or in this context, between Son and Father. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. I love that, where Jesus is saying, look, I am not making this up. I'm not doing my own stuff. I'm watching what the Father did, and I'm doing those things. I'm following his example. And what's the outcome?
1: Because Jesus does what the Father does, verse 20, The Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel." And it is a marvel. It's a marvelous work and a wonder when we see the works of God. We should rejoice instead of turning in anger. So in these next few verses, Jesus is going to keep
0: referencing what the Father does and then subsequently what the Son also doeth, following the, the Father's example. Look at verse – we'll jump down now to verse 24. Verily, verily I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So he's, he's making it very clear. I did not come on my own. I was sent by the Father. I am on his errand. I'm doing his will. I'm not doing my own. And then Verse 26, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. I've inherited that from my Father, that capacity, and that is going to come in crucial, crucially important when we get into the the week of the atoning sacrifice. You cannot forcefully take Jesus's life away from him he has life in himself, given to him by God, the only way that he dies is if he willingly gives up his ghost, if he, if he willingly lays his life down. So, he has all this power and look at verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing, as I hear I judge and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me." Do you see the significance of this as a precursor to what we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about during the week of the atoning sacrifice? Because Jesus has that power within himself, at any point, at any time, he could freely give up the ghost and stop the pain, stop the suffering, but he doesn't. He chooses to live through all of those horrific events until he gets to the very end when he could finally say, it is finished. The full price is paid and only then is he willing to give up the ghost. I I love that. Now we come over to chapter 6 and in this chapter John tells his version of the feeding of the 5,000 story and then the walking on the water and which we've covered in the previous episode. Now, if you turn the page over, begins one of the most uh, interesting and difficult periods of the Savior's ministry for this reason. Having fed the 5,000, having walked on water, and everybody realizes that he miraculously had gotten home because he wasn't on the ship and he didn't walk home with them last night, So they know something interesting happened there. So Jesus has grown in his popularity. He's on a pinnacle of popularity. And now the people, word has spread, hey, guess what happened? Yesterday we got a free lunch, free dinner. He healed people, he taught us, and he fed us. And it didn't cost us anything other than a uh, a long trip by foot. But now he's here. So this huge group starts gathering, and notice... The sense of entitlement that they lay at the Savior's feet. Look at verse 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat.
1: They think they're going to get more.
0: Where's Where's our lunch? We're ready. We're all here. Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Did you see it? they missed it. They thought Moses had fed them manna for forty years, and it was Jesus as Jehovah of the Old Testament who had done that miracle for them. He had given them bread, and they're giving the credit to Moses, and now Jesus is giving the credit one step higher to the Father. He's saying, look, and the Father hath given you the true bread, not the manna. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth light unto the world. And then they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now they're just straight out saying, okay, great, we want it, give it to us.
1: And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never
0: thirst. So notice the, the contrast here in verse 38 when he says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Remember the conversation he had had 75 miles south in Jerusalem with the, the chief priests of the people back in chapter 5? Now he's having the same conversation with his, his neighbors and kinsfolk and, and people who live around him up in the Galilee saying the exact same thing that I am not here to do my will. I'm here to do the the will of the Father. What a beautiful pattern for every church calling you'll ever receive. You don't get leadership positions or opportunities to do what you want to do. You're given authority, you're given power to preside or to lead so that you can figure out what the Lord wants you to do and then Go forward and do that. This pattern fits for all of us in any calling and not just in the Church but in a home setting. That's what parents should be praying for more than help my child to change, it's, Lord, what would thou have me do in order to help this son or this daughter learn thy law and fill of thy love and feel motivated to do the right things? So then it gets really uh, difficult for them because he shifts gears. Verse 41, did did you notice first time we saw it was in 35, I am the bread of life. Look at verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread of which came down from heaven. Now, Now they're saying, wait, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? And so he continues on, verse 48, I am the bread of life. So he says it again, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. There's a message there. The bread they ate, as miraculous and as life-saving as it was, this manna, they're dead. It's dead bread, but I'm the living bread bread that brings life.
1: Then he gets a lot clearer, unmistakably clearer. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world.
0: Wow, that's a showstopper. Yeah. The people in that congregation are looking at each other saying, what? And, and they even ask the question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat?
1: Now could you imagine you weren't familiar with Jesus or Christian tradition, and somebody came to church and said, hey, I'm going to let you eat my body and that will save you, and these people are really shocked. They don't understand at all what's going on, and it leads to some kind of sad after effects of, for the crowd.
0: Yeah, now look at verse 53, then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. He's making all these symbolic allusions and foreshadowings for the sacrament that is going to be introduced in the last week of his life, but they don't know anything about the sacrament at this point. They, they know the laws of sacrifice, and this, this is brand new to them. And then he takes it even further. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's almost as if he's trying to really push them in their discipleship. Why are you following me? Are you following me so you can eat bread and fish again for free, like you did yesterday? Or are you following me? because of my teachings and because of what uh, opportunities for discipleship and growth and sacrifice I'm offering to you. He, He gives verse 56, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. You'll notice that same couplet that Jesus is going to use referring to his relationship with Heavenly Father later on. He dwells in me and I dwell in him, and now he's using it with these people. When you partake of the sacrament, even though he's not using that word, then you dwell in me and I dwell in you. There's room in you. You take a piece of my body, this bread, and it becomes a part of you. You take a cup of wine or water for us today, you drink it, it becomes a part of you. His blood becomes part of our blood, symbolically, and it's this beautiful, Uh, connected covenantal relationship with Christ that he's offering them, but they can't get beyond the symbol to see the beautiful covenantal connection uh, metaphor behind the symbol because
1: it's so jarring to them. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life.
0: So he gave them a key to interpreting everything he's been teaching them right there. But they are so focused on this is a hard saying, who's able to, to bear it, as if they they can't they can't listen at that point they're so offended by him, so they get up and they're going to to leave here. From that time, verse 66, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They're done. They're – it's very clear he's not going to feed them manna every day as they saw Moses doing for their ancestors in the wilderness for forty years. They realize this this is a hard saying and we're not able to bear it. Do any of you find it odd that as this group in Mass is murmuring and complaining and muttering under their breath and as they're getting up and leaving the synagogue, shaking their head, waving their hands at him saying, we're done with you, that Jesus doesn't say, okay, time out, everybody, relax, take a few deep breaths, sit down, let me explain what I meant symbolically. He doesn't do that. I don't know why. He could have done that very easily. He lets them walk out without explaining it, and then we get one of the most, in my – from my view, one of the single most powerful teaching moments in the entire New Testament when he then turns to the twelve apostles who are sitting there and says, will ye also go away? Can you picture any of the twelve sitting there thinking, no, Jesus, we're not going to leave you, and by the way, we loved that talk. It was perfect. We know exactly what you're talking about. Well done. We would have said it exactly the same way. (laughs) I I could be wrong, but I don't think any of the twelve fully grasped what he had just taught to the people. So, if they didn't grasp the message, what are they holding on to? Why aren't they walking away offended right now? Simon Peter provides a voice for these twelve apostles. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. I love Simon Peter's response here because what he's signifying to us is, I may not have all the answers, but I've been with Jesus enough to know that he has words of eternal life and if you'll be patient and if you'll stick with him, if you'll stay in that covenantal connection with him, that relationship with him, things will work out. Confusion, questions, uncertainty, mysteries will be resolved you're going to get answers. It's going to become clear. Even though right now I may not have a clue what you just said, I know that I can't go anywhere else and find anyone to give me the words of eternal life. I can find a lot of people to tell me how to live my life, how to find greater happiness and and pleasure and, and all the decisions to make, but it's not going to lead me to eternal life. So I love that he then follows it up with, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. So as we conclude this episode this week, uh, I wanted to share one more thought with you from a talk given by Elder Robert S. Wood clear back in May of 2003, in a, a devotional at BYU-Idaho called, Be Ye Transformed by the Renewal of Your Mind. In there, this is a talk that uh, Elder Clark Gilbert made us aware of and asked us to study, and it's an amazing talk because Elder Wood shares this experience of having this long list of questions that somebody thought were uh, problems with the Book of Mormon, and over many years over even decades, he worked his way through this list, finding answers to all of these problems that somebody had given to him for the Book of Mormon, and I believe he was like in his 50s when he finally found the answer to the last question on his list, and his conclusion was what a difference it would have made if he had waited until he had had all those answers, to then fully engage in his covenant discipleship uh, and moving forward in, in the gospel. And I would suggest to you that I don't think he would have ever found the answer to most of those questions had he disengaged with his discipleship. It's only by engaging with those things that we don't know that we can then draw greater strength from those things that we do know, and those foundations of testimony can get stronger and more firm, more steadfast and immovable as we don't run away from the things that we don't know. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to not have every gospel question answered right here, right now. It's okay to have to wrestle for months, years, even decades with difficult trying things in this gospel where you're confused and you don't know – you don't know what's right if we keep going back to what we do know rather than putting all of the focus on what we are struggling to figure out, and that can then lead to doubts. So, as we finish this episode today, it's our testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he has the words of eternal life, but sometimes we don't know that language very well and so we have to practice speaking the language of eternal life and learn it over time until we can become fluent enough to get all of those unclear, muddy, confusing elements of the gospel to where they all of a sudden make sense. We know that he lives, we know that he loves you, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved.
1: And spread light and goodness.